Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. And today is entitled, My Biggest Regrets Part 2. Uh, My Biggest Regrets Part 2. Now again, this uh, came out of a meeting I had with a number of pastors uh, last month where Jerry and I were asked, what has been the, our greatest regret in leadership? And I was so taken aback by the question was a little bit unsure of where to begin. And we went into dual relationships and power, and the group had a, quite a lively discussion about that. But it really got me thinking about what really have been my greatest regrets over the last, uh, <clears throat> well, 30, 40 years. And uh, so, again, last week I began with my first four regrets I, in the part one of this. And ta- I talked about not understanding dual relationships and power was number one. Number two was uh, impatient and rushing and making key decisions, or if I can use the not, not making key decisions uh, in rush or impatience. Thirdly was not leading or listening to God out of my marriage, uh, our marriage, the first nine years. And the fourth was not working uh, as much, you know, resting more and giving away responsibilities earlier. Uh, So today I want to talk to you about actually uh, numbers five through ten, and uh, actually there's six more, and uh, it took me a bit to actually get them tight. Uh, so let's move on here to number five and get started. <clears throat> uh, the fifth greatest regret, and again, these aren't necessarily in an order, uh, although I think the first three or four are probably the biggest, uh, but this is a big one here, which is not redefining success clearly and early enough. Not redefining success clearly and early enough. Uh, I, I allowed uh, the, both the world and I would say the present church uh, model of success to do it for me. And, uh, you know, I, I knew, I think I knew what was right. I knew about what was right, but I didn't know it deeply in me. And I, I like to say I was infected with the yeast of the Pharisees. And it led to a lot of anxiety and discontentment, robbed a lot of joy within myself, and it made me less of a leader. Uh, you know, leader success is measured very simply in the church, uh, as it often is measured outside the church, which is numbers. Uh, numbers of people attending, baptisms, memberships, people serving, people in small groups, number of small groups, giving, etc. Just It's all numbers and size. And... Again, Scripture does give a, you know, some stuff on numbers. We have a whole book called Numbers. The Book of Acts gives us some examples of numbers: three thousand believers, five thousand believers. And but at the same time, Scripture gives us a very wrong way of dealing with numbers. And we see that, for example, in King David commissioning Joab to do a census of all the fighting men, and he's motivated by pride and not trusting in God uh, by the size of his army, and uh, it's idolatrous. His focus on numbers and a severe you know, judgment comes on uh, Israel for this. And because a numerical growth or numbers in the world equates with power and significance. And uh, there's this value that bigger is always better. And, uh, you know, bigger company, bigger money you make, pe- more people esteem you, etc. And we look at people differently based on how much money they have or how big their churches or organizations are. And uh, but bigger isn't always better. And we see that, of course, clearly in, in Jesus. And um, uh, we see clearly in, in a number of biblical characters who uh, don't have numbers to show for their ministries. And I think of people like a John the Baptist, who ended up with uh, very few numbers and his head being cut off. Uh, I think of Amos, who was told by God to 
go to the northern, uh, leave the fruitful home of his southern kingdom in Judah and go north, where uh, he was not responded to well at all, uh, didn't have big numbers, or Jesus in revival in Capernaum uh, in Mark 1, leaving there uh, to go to a place where there'd be less fruit. I think of Jeremiah serving for 50, 60 years and not having great fruit, and the list goes on. And so you sure can't pull out scripture for that uh, as a, you know, as a measure. And so uh, you know, the great challenge is redefining success. And, and uh, so that's what I would like to say in Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, that have you ever considered that your ministry or organization or team may be growing and yet you're actually failing? Because success is first and foremost doing what God's asked you to do and doing it in his way and in his timing. Again, easier said than done. And I found myself now <clears throat> in conversations with uh, younger pastors where this issue of success comes up over and over again because, of course, I see uh, in folks myself. And uh, and I, my wife actually said to me recently, she says, you've got to write down what you're saying in these conversations to people because it's so important. And I'm not even sure I remember all the conversations, but this I do know about uh, redefining success <clears throat> To walk with Jesus and to be yourself uh, and growing in the midst of leading for Jesus in the, in the world in which we live, with powers and principalities that move in the world uh, to cut us off from Jesus and his will and dream for our lives, that itself is success. Uh, to lead out of an, a walk of integrity with him and yourself is amazing. To be comfortable in your own skin and how God uniquely made you. To live in contentment as a leader with all the needs around you that you can't meet yourself and not allowing the world to define what success is for you, that is enormous success. Um, to have a marriage uh, that is actually a sign and wonder for Christ that's overflowing with the love of Jesus or a singleness that's overflowing out of the love of Jesus, that is uh, success. To be, to be bearing fruit and abounding, to be making disciples of a few is success and to be faithful to Jesus and his call for your life is great success. You know, so sadly, I, I find so often we're, we're snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, and what that means is that we, we, we feel like we're losing when we're actually winning. Uh, you know, I can think of one conversation I had with a, uh, a wonderful leader uh, from Canada and I, and I was telling him, you know, he was struggling with his limits and how he discern God's will and all this stuff left undone. And I just looked at him and I said, you've already succeeded. Uh, I mean, you are a success. What you've done is a success. The fact that you're pastoring this church that didn't exist and now it actually exists and there's 50, 60 people in the room that were not there before as a witness to Christ in your city and town is amazing, is a miracle. Uh, and again, all he could see was the problem for the last 18 months of launching the church and all the struggles and all the needs that he has before him and all the challenges. Uh, and I said, I, I just said to him, I said, you're, and then he was, of course, helping some other church plants get off the ground and other churches there and his part of Canada. And I, I just said, that we're just walking, the fact that you're walking with Jesus, the fact that you can be content, that's success. The fact that you could learn contentment, that's going to be your measure of success. And be, having a marriage that's uh, being nurtured, that you're leading out of your marriage, that your spouse doesn't feel second, that she's experiencing and, and experiencing your love for her, not just hearing it in words. You're living the message you're preaching. Uh, 
you're, you're, you're loving people as Jesus. You're, you're living out the gospel. You're rejoicing that the church in the next town may have 500 or 300 people in it. That's amazing. And that you're able to speak well of that pastor in that church. I mean, that's incredible. And uh, so, again, I, I think, again, you may be in the marketplace and maybe you own your own business or you're in sales. and But you living out following Jesus in your context, being joyful and open to the will of God each day, being faithful, that is success. You may be unemployed or in transition right now, but the way you're doing your transition uh, as a Christ follower is success, the way you're waiting on God. And so doing the hard work of defining success is very, uh, in, very critical. I regret not having done it earlier. Uh, I wish I could have seen the success I was actually doing. I remember people saying to me, the fact that New Life Fellowship Church exists, Pete, is a pure miracle. This is incredible. And they would say to me at numerous points along the way uh, uh, at our church, when I was a lead pastor for the first 26 years, and I just couldn't even see it because I was just so in it. And all I knew was, again, I'm carrying the weight of all the problems and all the things that are not done, etc. cetera. Uh, and so I, I, I experienced levels of knowing what success really is in God's kingdom, not just knowing about it. Uh, and I think, again, as I grow older and time passes, I see it even more clearly, of course, now. And I think I can, have, I can speak to some of you who are listening who are younger. Uh, but I, I did some of the hard work uh, early on about defining, redefining success for, for me and for our church as a leader. It was extremely freeing and important to do. Uh, and I remember one one quality of success for our church at New, when I was, I was pastoring was was to get 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 away from just this whole numbers idolatry was uh, you know we were called to bridge racial cultural economic and gender barriers again the nature of our location in Queens New York and when I began to just write it on paper and look at it and before the Lord it was incredibly freeing uh, to me so I, I want to invite you to to walk away from the world's definition of success to Jesus and. Uh, again, whether it's popularity and, uh, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees were very unimpressed with Jesus. Uh, he didn't, you know, uh, he wasn't showy. He wasn't a performer. He wasn't concerned about impressing anybody uh, or his followers on Twitter, Instagram. This, he walked away from being great by the world standards and Satan kept offering him greatness, turning stones to bread and jumping off, you know, tops of the temple or giving him the whole world. And, and I want to invite you to follow Jesus and resist being the greatest pastor, the greatest mom, the greatest leader, having the greatest business, uh, having a greatest degree or name dropping. And just as Jesus says, just invite the whole, and Jesus invites us to give up the whole idea of being great by the world standards totally and any at any quest for status and, and to embrace this Jesus kingdom, which is little and seeds uh, and earthen vessels mixed with wheat uh, and we just we reject and say no to the whole world's understanding of success. Uh, and, you know, the disciples had a really tough time getting that. Uh, Peter, James and John. And uh, again, it's so deep in the culture and it's so deep in the church is measurement of success by again worldly numbers or success. But but worldly numbers or um, <clears throat> worldly success and. Just remember, it's becoming the person God's called you to become and doing what God's called you to do. No more and no less and embracing the, the suffering that comes in following Jesus because out of suffering comes resurrection. Uh, so before I move on to my next point, number six here, let me just mention I'm, I'm, a, a book I'm reading. I'm, I'm reading this just in, for my enjoyment 
uh, at night the last uh, couple of weeks. It's it's a it's wa- it's called Washington: A Life by Ron Chernow, and he's the biographer who's written books on Hamilton, out of which the you know Broadway play is based on, or in Grant, and. Uh, it it just gives a quite a in one volume a you know quite a detailed uh, life of Washington and one of the things that so strikes me is that he learned in the crucible of all his failure and mistakes and before the United States was founded and he was whether it was in the French and Indian War or leading the American Revolution uh, he was making lots of mistakes he was in, he was under such a pressure cooker I don't know how he survived such pain and leadership but. The, the country's constitution uh, was formed and, and the country was formed out of his pain and failures and difficulties. And I just was like, oh, I, I just was like, felt the Lord just whispering to me, this is normal, Pete. Your process of learning from your failures and is so healthy, you know. And so I want to encourage you, just relax, um, just relax. Um, every failure and regret you will have on your list uh, in a few years it's all going to be a, turned by God into a gift for him. <clears throat> okay, so with that, let me move on to the sixth uh, greatest or biggest regrets I have. And the sixth is, is not moving to teen preaching uh, much earlier than I did, not developing preachers. Uh, I actually didn't move to it fully uh, until my 17th year into uh, being a lead pastor. Uh, I wish I'd put time into it earlier and believed in myself that I had the ability to actually help people become uh, good preachers and had been willing to have those honest conversations with people as they preached. Again, my sense of self was I'm too too underdeveloped and I didn't trust I could or I was good enough to do it. Um, and actually, I, I learned this. Uh, again, once we moved into team preaching, by my 17th year, I was like this. It was unbelievable. It was fantastic. And um, and actually, I watched when Rich uh, took over New Life Fellowship Church, and he was I think he was 34 when he took over. Uh, he he was began to train preachers, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, it took me 17 years to get around to it. Uh, but the last nine years that we did it, I, I loved it, and uh, I waited too long. So, and the church needed it. I, I realized that I created an unhealthy dependence on me. Uh, clearly, I believed I was more important. Uh, than I was, that people needed to hear the word from me. Uh, and actually, I missed I, of, of one person in particular, my very early years, I'm talking about year one, two, that uh, was gold. And uh, I could so easily have developed her if I had um, just had a you know bit of a vision and confidence in myself to actually give her some good feedback, uh, but didn't. And... Uh, and actually, there were other things I wanted to invest my time into as a leader, and things like leadership and thinking and prayer and silence and giving sermons consistently. It, giving a sermon is a suffering birth process. And to do 45 or 40 plus a year, at least for me, uh, felt inhuman and uh, became quite a pressure. And uh, so... Uh, you know, I just want to encourage you that there are folks around you perhaps that may have a gift and a calling. You want folks who have a gift and a calling to it, uh, not just a gift, but a calling to do it. And so, and you want to at least leverage those who can. And, and uh, But you want to balance. You don't want to just throw anybody up there um, because a person in the pulpit is, is forming spiritually a people in, in, in the um, congregation. 
So I just want to be open to looking and, and trusting that God's made you the leader if you are the senior leader and uh, that you're able to help people learn to be better uh, communicators uh, and be ready to learn because you're going to learn a lot uh, by watching other people preach and helping them preach better. And it's just good all around. And let me just make a little final note about this. It's tangentially related to this and that you can look without anxiety. So oh, there's nobody here. There's a great insight in John chapter uh, 6, uh, beginning of verse 36 and, and following, uh, where Jesus makes a couple of comments about, such as, and I'll quote this, every single person, he says, the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father. And Jesus had a, had a, a great sense of peace that the Father draws disciples. He's in charge of the mission, and that this sovereign God, our Lord, will always have a supply of people. And Jesus just wasn't worried too much. And he says this in the midst of a great crowd of disciples walking away from him. But he just wasn't worried. God's in charge of the mission of the church. So he's, Jesus is just very relaxed. In his own time, God's going to bring him people. And uh, so he's not carrying anxiety or guilt. That is a, a, a enormously uh, powerful truth to enter into as a leader the sense is, yes, we're, we're praying for workers, we're, we're, our eyes are open for leaders and looking for people, but there's a real sense where God in his time brings us people and we're watching for them as they come. But I love that when Jesus says, every single person the Father gives me will come to me. And again, there's always a sense where it's God who brings us people into our churches, into our ministries, into our orbit of influence, and that we receive them and seek to serve them as possible. So as you think about who can lead with me? Who can actually even preach? Uh, which isn't very many people. Uh, there's a, a sense of God has a timing. And I wait on that. I pray for it. I offer it to him. And uh, I encourage you to do so. All right. Number seventh regret was allowing fear to keep me from making difficult but right decisions. Allowing fear to keep me from making difficult but right decisions. I'm actually thinking of one situation in particular uh, that uh, a person that I, I really did need to uh, let go from their position. and But I didn't. Uh, and it really was fear of hurting them, what others would think, how I would look, what people would say about me. And I ended up not loving them well and enabling them to move on with their life. Uh, and I believe I, I hurt the church that I was stewarding uh, and lowered the integrity of what we were doing. I, again, I think we, we, we as leaders, we, we model integrity. We determine the level of integrity in the whole community. By that, I mean that we live what we say. We do what we say. Our word is a, our yes is yes. Our no is no. Uh, and the person was not in the right position uh, and it was my responsibility and role, because they worked for me, to actually you know, bring that to the elders into a process. <clears throat> and this relates, of course, to the second regret of last week, which is impatience and rushing and making key decisions. I, um, uh, I, didn't, I didn't make the decision. Um, but uh, th there were difficult conversations I didn't have with people. And I'm, again, I'm mentioning one in particular, but there was a couple of others I, I needed to have along the way, but I was afraid and uh, where it would lead. And 
And then, of course, in the long run, it never leads to anything good anyway. And, uh, and I think we underestimate the power of fear to, that keeps us from obeying God's will. Um, and, uh, you know, our fears are perhaps the worst enemies of uh, God's desires for us. And there are demonic powers behind fear and that uh, they, they wage fears like a, they wage a deliberate lifelong campaign against uh, f- the fulfillment of God's dream in and through us. And don't underestimate fear uh, because God's not about that for sure. And that's why the Bible says hundreds of times, you know, do not fear. And, um, and I remember just in the early years apologizing for things that we weren't good at versus just because I would, you know, afraid that people would think I was a loser leader versus eventually I just said, you know, this is what God's given us to do and me to do and this is who I am. And out of a deep conviction, I'm going to follow up on that and just kind of let go in a more freeing way of what people thought. I actually asked a good friend who was an elder at, for with me for 25 years. And I asked him, well, give me a list of your greatest regrets because uh, we walked that journey together. And he gave a list. But the one that I, I struck me was, one he listed was, living out of fear when the Holy Spirit placed a word on my heart and remaining silent when a voice was needed. And I thought, yeah, you know, it's interesting. He, that made his list and my list as well. It may make yours also. And you probably want to ask yourself, where are you not moving forward or obeying because of fear. Just one final thought on this fear from John 12, 42 and 43, when uh, John, the apostle, is writing this, uh, writing the gospel of John, and he, and he says that uh, many leaders believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And, and uh John speaking about that their faith did not conquer their fear and the, these confessing leaders had less courage because they had other ambitions and and fears and and the power of the world just smothered their convictions and I want to encourage you to uh, move step over those fears into you know the faith that God may have you to exercise right now at this season of your life all right number eight uh, eighth regret is is not putting my family first before the church. Now, uh, again, this is a, uh, uh, that is actually related to one instance that happened in particular. Of course, in my early years prior to emotionally the discipleship in 1996, I'm making that huge turn to putting our marriage first and family, even, but, but something happened after that, that I, I do, you know, regret and around one of my daughters, um, where, I let go, she was in the youth group and I let go our youth pastor while she was in the youth group. Uh, actually her senior year. And I underestimated uh, the impact that was going to have on her because I could, never, I could never divulge the full story of what was going to happen, what, you know, why we let this person go. As you know, when you, when you let someone go, you're never quite sure what's going to, the impact's going to be uh, in the church and how they're going to respond long-term, et cetera. And of course, my daughter sided with me because I'm her father. And even though she didn't know all the details and but in the process, she lost her best friends. Uh, it was her senior year, and it was really stupid. Um, <clears throat> it was towards the end of her year. Uh, and uh, I didn't weigh the cost that would have on her as a PK, pastor's kid. Uh, of course, I was never a pastor's kid. I came to Christ at 19. Uh, never understood that my daughters, my four daughters, could never have a normal relationship with the church I pastored because 
I was the lead pastor. And uh, what I should have done and what I wish I had done was just waited a few more months. Uh, would not have been in the world. Uh, there was no reason to rush that. Uh, of course, I was frustrated, impatient. Uh, again, slow it down. I should have gotten some other trusted mentors involved. Um, and I, I believe very much that God's in the limits of, of marriage and family. And uh, the dual, I did not really grasp the, the breadth of dual roles of what it was going to mean for my children. And uh, it took me a couple of years to, my daughter was so hurt. I mean, it took her a, a couple of years for our own relationship to get um, healed from that. And uh, of course, I asked her forgiveness as it all unfolded, but uh, the damage was done and uh, it was really, really sad, deep regrets. So again, I think when you're in those situations around your family and your leadership, you want to just be getting some input from wise mentors along the way because they're complex and uh, you want to be thoughtful and of course, prayerful in the process. My ninth regret was, was is not building 360s into the leadership culture uh, our leadership culture, and but starting with me. Again, not building 360s into our leadership culture, starting with me. Now, a 360 is basically a tool uh, that's used in parts of the business world, and it's basically getting feedback from people uh, who are you report to, people who report to you, people who work, co-workers with you, on how they experience you. And it takes a strong sense of self and maturity to do such a thing. And I'd looked into it and heard about it for years. I knew folks who did it professionally in the marketplace. I knew some therapists who did it. Uh, and then, but it was really towards the end of my tenure uh, as lead pastor from 26 years. And I didn't know of any churches doing it at the time. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 I knew it was, I just knew it was very costly, at least the ones that I knew at that point. And uh, I knew I had one therapist, you know, PhD, who, who offered to come in and do it, and he would monitor because it, it's 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 quite sensitive. Obviously, as people are doing a 360 on you, that ha- information needs to be handled delicately and carefully and, and wisely. And uh, again, I never never quite got to it. I uh, wish I had um, because I, I see such a value in. It. In fact, if you before I go any further, if you know anything about churches that have done this successfully and in a way that's uh, cheaply done or done in a way that's reasonable, that could be done on a, on a regular basis, maybe every couple of years for lead staff or senior staff, uh, send me an email at info at emotionallyhealthy.org. I would love to know uh, what you've done or discovered, especially any within a Christian context. <clears throat> but send me anything you know about. Uh, and if I do find something that's really excellent, I will pass it on. But I remember at certain points in my journey, uh, realizing flaws in me, I mean, flaws that other people saw and I, I'd be so surprised. Um, you know, it usually came out of someone frustrated with me in my inner circle uh, who are annoyed or upset and that I wasn't getting it. And I, I just remember a couple of folks giving me feedback on how they experienced me. And I was like, really? How do they know that? Like, I knew it deep down, but like, they knew it. I thought I was hiding it. And uh, even as we did succession at the end of my 26-year tenure and the board and others were working on the next lead pastor, of course, my flaws became uh, very, what's the word, evident, because they're looking for folks who don't have my flaws, which is normal. But it, it, would, it would so have accelerated my inner and interior growth if I had done a 360 or a few 360s along the way, because you want to be monitoring your shadow and working on your shadow continually. It takes such courage. And if we can go first always, 
we set the culture around us. And it's something I regret not having built into the culture uh, before I turned a church over. And my final and deeper, my final um, <clears throat> regret is not building deeper silence into my life earlier. Uh, not building deeper silence into my life earlier. There are so many reasons for silence, all right, and, and stillness. But there's one that stands out for me uh, now. It, it, silence is the only way that the world's going to get the real you and that the people around you are going to get the real you. And I like the way uh, one author you know, describes the power of silence in his life. He says, I'm constantly surrounded by, by noise and all of it blocks my ability to hear the real me that exists beneath all the noise. So he goes, I cultivate silence every morning. I sit in it, bask in it, wrap myself in it, and hear and feel me. And then whenever the, wherever the day takes me, the people I meet are the beneficiaries of my having taken the time. They get the real me, not someone shaped and altered by the noise around me. And uh, as you know, we, we, we built, it was in 2003 when uh, we brought the contemplative, the slow down, silence and stillness, spirituality into emotional health. That, that, was, a, that was a massive shift in my own life. And our church and now all that represents emotionally and discipleship. In fact, as we bring, as we encourage leaders to bring emotional discipleship to their own lives and to churches, uh, it's the foundation of silence and stillness before the Lord uh, that's built into uh, the two daily office books, Emotionally the Spirituality Day by Day and Emotionally the Relationships Day by Day. It's to get people started with silence. In fact, I want to encourage you to pick one of those books up, whether it's Spirituality Day by Day or Relationships Day by Day. Put it on in your e-book, e on, on your phone perhaps, carry it with you, and just begin to build silence, some dimension of silence in your life, uh, because it has to start with us as leaders. And But I wish I'd built a deeper silence into my life earlier. Uh, it is the core of everything we're doing at Emotion of Discipleship. I know of no other way uh, to get people out of a second-hand spirituality to a first-hand spirituality directly with Jesus. And I don't know of a clearer, simpler way to get you and get me free from all the noise that seeks to form and shape us. So let me close with just a thought here about your regrets as you think about your own. I may have triggered a few for you. And I've given you now my top 10. But remember the story of Joseph, uh, which Joseph made some real mistakes early on as a young man at 17. And um, a lot of bad things happened as a result to him. But he was able to see at the end of his life that, that you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. And the entire lesson of, Je of Joseph is the lesson of the whole book of Genesis, which is Genesis is about new beginnings. And at, once, at one level, there are struggles, our, our regrets, our failures. But on another level, there's the purposes of God at work in hidden and mysterious way. Uh, God works at his purpose through and in spite of our failures and uh, traumas that happen to us. And uh, the brothers could not see the ways of God, the brothers of Joseph, but Joseph could. Uh, that there was a hidden plan of God at work. And uh, Joseph laments, he's a realist, but he's certain of a God he knows that you planned it for evil, but God intended it for good. So let me encourage you, God's sovereignty and his blessings can be found in even what appear to be the worst situations. And, uh, but somehow God gets it done. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It's been so wonderful to be with you. Send me questions or comments, uh, either at info at emotionallyhealthy.org or at Twitter, Facebook. Love to hear from you. Any ideas for podcasts you'd love to hear about in the future. 
And go to emotionallyhealthy.org when you get a chance. Look around there. Find out more about Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, some free ebooks in the course. Learn some more. And I look forward to being with you uh, again next week. God bless everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. <music>